Hello and welcome to the August 23rd edition of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. I'm Joe Alcock and today we're going to talk about teaching evolutionary medicine. I'm choosing this topic because I am in the eighth or ninth year of teaching uh, evolution and medicine to undergraduates and pre-medical students as well as medical students and today is the beginning of the fall semester. So I've been thinking about this class and what makes it different, my teaching philosophy and what I want to get across to my students and I thought that I would share at least some of this with you in this short podcast. First off, why do it? Why bother teaching evolution to pre-medical and medical students and undergraduates as well as graduate students? What's, what's in it for them and for me? So part of this, of course, is that it's just interesting. And this is probably the primary driver for me, just intellectual curiosity and the excitement of learning new things. And for me, maybe the excitement of having a perspective which is a little bit different from that of other people. I think many academically or scientifically inclined people are attracted to that idea of finding an area of knowledge where the ground has not been totally plowed and there may be some uh, opportunities for new and exciting insights. I think that evolutionary biology illuminates an important part of being human. We all, as humans, experience health and disease. We're all interested, generally, in these topics. It's also, inter- it's also easy to get other people interested in talking about health and disease, as it turns out. And these phenomena can be and should be studied and understood from an evolutionary perspective. So that's the whole idea behind evolutionary medicine. So I've mentioned that we can gain some novel insights about ourselves when we think about ways in which different parts of our physiology and disease processes may or may not have been shaped by natural selection and other evolutionary forces. But importantly, it's also a hypothesis-generating heuristic. So if I really sit down and think about a disease and use my training in evolutionary biology to bear on that process, I'll invariably come up with hypotheses that are testable. And so I take advantage of this in my class. And we can pick just about any disease process um, and brainstorm about ways in which we think that evolution might be relevant to that disease. So in fact, I ask my students to do this both for their assignments and for their final projects. And then finally, as I've talked about in the podcast, using an evolutionary approach I think, can help you as a physician avoid mistakes uh, when taking care of patients. And at a population level, when we think about health systems and guidelines for taking care of patients, I think evolution is useful in that respect as well. So these are very, I think, practical ways of using evolution in medicine, and it provides a rationale for why I personally study this and why I teach it and why I think my students should learn it. That raises the question of, all right, so if I've decided to teach evolutionary medicine, where should I do it? Should I do it in the medical school, in my own department, to residents, 
in other locations on campus. And for various reasons, mostly because I was invited by an early collaborator, Blair Wolf, uh, to teach it in the biology department, I taught it and continue to teach it in biology. So most courses, if you look nationwide at courses in evolution and medicine, are carried out either in biology departments or anthropology departments. And in fact, my class has been cross-listed in anthropology in the past, and I get a lot of interest from anthropology graduate students in my courses. But for that reason, so just for maybe intellectual reasons wherein some of these ideas dovetail nicely with uh, evolution courses taught in biology departments or various anthropology courses. Those are natural fits for teaching evolutionary medicine. I also do teach this to medical students, and there is a course listed in the catalog at the University of New Mexico. Uh, but for, again, for various reasons, that class is just not as popular as the one that I teach in biology. So, you know, taking the path of least resistance, it's easier for me to teach it where students want to take it and where I find a ready audience. So just from a practical perspective, I have just a handful of students in the, in the medical school to take my, take, take my class as an elective, and I have more than I can handle, so there's more demand than I'm able to meet in terms of the class I teach in the biology department. So there's just far from many more people that want to take it in that setting. So if that's where people are interested, uh, it makes sense to teach it there. And when I do teach it to my medical students, we talk about the medical curriculum, and I ask them how foreign or how new the ideas of evolution are that we discuss and going over case studies and talking about antibiotic resistance and talking about genetic polymorphisms uh, that are important in disease and thinking about why some of those polymorphisms might be or may not be uh, maintained by natural selection. I ask my students, have they been exposed to some of these evolutionary ideas? Remarkably, the answer is no. And this is true for students that I've taught years ago and students I've taught more recently. And it still surprises me. I'm just amazed that my colleagues in the School of Medicine aren't spending much time covering this ground, even though some other medical schools are doing perhaps a better job of this. I might feel kind of guilty about that because I'm in a position to do something about this. I might be on the curriculum committee. I might make an effort to you know, politic and get people on the side of introducing more evolutionary concepts in the medical school curriculum, but for various reasons, again, maybe because it's kind of swimming upstream, whereas teaching in the biology department is not, um, I really haven't taken that, that role. So, but I do feel a little bit guilty about it. And in an alternative universe, or maybe in the future, if I have more energy, that's something that we will try to do here. But having said that, and I've talked to other people that teach this course, there's a lot of interest in sort of earlier levels of education. So high school, college, those may be the, the right places to teach some of these ideas. We're, we're really kind of get into people's heads that evolution might be useful. Uh, and then people can bring those ideas into medical school and residency and training and then practice with them if they do go on to 
take a medical career. But that's an, that's an area of active debate. Let's talk a little bit about what I want my, my students to learn. And I was just thinking about this uh, this morning, and I, I'm not one to argue that evolutionary medicine is the only way to approach uh, a problem of health and disease. And I think that it may not even be superior to other ways of thinking about disease processes. So what I, what I want my students to do, and what I try to do myself, is to weave in evolutionary biology with other strands of knowledge to make sense of a disease or uh, you know, some part of human health and physiology. So again, there's many strands of knowledge that are important. They don't need to be explicitly evolutionary, most of them. So I think that bringing knowledge from epidemiology, basic science, work bench research that explores physiology of disease, molecular biology, evidence-based medicine, and outcomes research. These are all necessary, I think, to be becoming a good doctor. And trying to stay up to date with at least some of this is probably important in becoming a well-informed citizen with the ability to take care of yourself and your family. But I think equal to all, the, all these other strands, and probably, you know, should be a foundational science to most of them, is evolutionary biology. And I think that taking an explicitly evolutionary approach is important, and as important as the rest. It needs to be woven into this, this fabric. So that's, that's the image that I would, you know, bring to this question. And, you know, putting together a tapestry of knowledge that includes evolutionary biology as an as a integral part of it, is how I approach this, and that's what I want my students to, to think about. Now, if I were to perhaps talk to a, a skeptic of the importance of evolutionary medicine, they might say something like, well, you know, it's all fine and good to, you know, take an evolutionary, you know, approach to some of these problems, but as soon as we show that that evolutionary thing or idea has a practical benefit, then it's just going to become medicine. So maybe there shouldn't be no any, any distinct evolutionary medicine. As soon, soon as it shows its value, it'll just be kind of incorporated into the omelet of medicine uh, and sort of folded into, into what we already know, and then we'll just call it medicine uh, if there's utility in it. And this is, this is what I call the argument from alternative medicine. So some people make the very same argument about alternative or integrative approaches to medicine, that uh, there really should be no such thing as you know, a separate domain of healthcare that looks at things like acupuncture or yoga therapy, etc. Because as soon as, you know, if any element of integrative medicine is shown to be useful, then it's just medicine. But this is kind of a dismissive point of view, and I don't think it captures uh, a basic truth, which is that sometimes uh, other, you know, taking, you know, taking a more um, cross-disciplinary approach to an important problem like a disease or, or healthcare is probably a useful approach. And yes, I think it's, it's a worthy goal to show utility to folded into the greater enterprise of, of medicine. But I think that saying that of evolutionary medicine is simply wrong. And it's simply wrong because we might fail to recognize the importance of the findings of previously published research uh, unless we 
understand this through an evolutionary lens. We might ask the wrong questions. We may not translate evidence to practice unless we recognize how evolution is important. So I can give examples of this, and I, I you know, I have in, in previous podcasts. But to give one simple idea, the idea that there are host defenses that are important in disease symptoms. So drawing on uh, George Williams and Randy Nessie's um, book, Why We Get Sick, and there's a chapter on host defenses. And the idea is that many of the things that people go to the doctor for might, in fact, represent a host defense. So if you have a cough, the cough itself may actually help you expel infection pus dangerous microorganisms and may be beneficial to you. And in addition to possibly possibly benefiting certain pathogens that are transmitted that way. Uh, but you can make the same argument that, that certain kinds of diarrhea are important in that the fast transit of the gut allows uh, the body to expel some potentially harmful pathogens. And the fever itself may actually be, be a benefit. And that's something that I've come to uh, as a topic of interest in this blog. So these are insights from evolution that by themselves are probably important, but require some evidence to back them up. So, you know, if you, and when these sorts of things have been looked at, especially in children, when we've looked at giving antibiotics to children, when we've talked about giving anti-diarrheals to uh, sick kids with um, severe diarrhea, uh, trying to give very young children cough medications or medicines for, for congestion, it turns out that in those instances, uh, what we find is that one, they don't work. Two, the side effect profile becomes uh, intolerable. Uh, and we, we see kids sometimes either dying uh, because of medication effects uh, or at, the, at best that the medications are simply a, a, a worthless intervention. They simply don't work. So here's where I think those provide some examples of where evolutionary insights dovetail with evidence-based medicine, and the insights can allow greater translation of those of that evidence to practice. I still see people that I work with giving cough medication to young children. It doesn't work. There might be some good reason to not do it uh, from an evolutionary standpoint and thinking about cough as being a host defense. And yet, so I think that if, if they brought an evolutionary perspective to the, to the, to the table uh, and then layered upon that some of the evidence, that would actually speed translation to practice. And then finally, there's the ethical argument. If there's no benefit and only cost for any, in any intervention, then we shouldn't do it. So if something is, uh, lacks utility in making, speeding you towards recovery, then we probably shouldn't do it. So this, this you know, this is something that I think needs some more attention, the ethical dimension to this. And I think that, you know, I can give you lots of examples, um, anywhere from antipyretics to uh, giving people antibiotics for self-limited infections, where there's an ethical, evidence-based, and evolutionary rationale for not doing it. And when those three things come together, um, that should be a powerful argument for a change in practice. So the other thing that I want my students to learn and something that I try to teach them is the recognition of paradoxes in medicine. So where existing practice just doesn't make sense from an evolutionary perspective. And this, again, is a hypothesis-generating heuristic. Um, it may be that we're missing something. 
And we shouldn't think of them as paradoxes, but oftentimes they're genuine paradoxes that should be resolved. So example, one of the things that, that I've been interested in is why is it that uh, clotting, blood clotting, and inflammation are regulated tightly together? So some they have some of the same regulatory mechanisms and uh, modulators, things like, say, TNF-alpha, for instance, um, a cytokine that promotes both inflammation and blood clotting. So that's an interesting phenomenon. So why, so there may be, there's an evolutionary question of why those things um, shouldn't be decoupled. And it raises a paradox because the combination of inflammation and clotting is so clearly bad for you when you're having a heart attack or a stroke. And, may, and maybe perhaps not so clearly bad for you, but people have argued bad for you in things like sepsis. So why hasn't natural selection acted to ameliorate the harmful blood clotting and inflammation. So this is a paradox. And I think it's a paradox that most people just don't recognize. And there's a variety of different ways to resolve the paradox. You could argue that these things simply happen to old people and in a more evolutionarily relevant environment in the past. People simply wouldn't have lived long enough uh, for these um, events um, to kill people and thereby uh, provide for an opportunity for selection to act. But, you know, that may be one answer, and there, there are others. But the alternative view, which is just to accept that the body self-destructs and does a whole variety of harmful things, um, is, I think, kind of the default bias to, to much biomedical research. So the, the researchers are motivated by the idea that the body participates in a bunch of self-destructive processes uh, immunological and other, that if we can just find the right mediator that regulates these immune inflammation or coagulation processes, if we can just intervene in just the right way, then we can improve a wide variety of outcomes. And it might be the case that that is true, that there may be some immune or coagulation modulators that are beneficial when you're having a stroke or a heart attack, uh, but it raises the question of why these things exist in the first place. And there's a wide, widening body of evidence in sepsis, as I've discussed in previous podcasts, that that point of view is just probably wrong. Uh, that there probably isn't a silver bullet modulator of coagulation or inflammation that you can turn off by pharma pharmaceutical means and improve people's survival in general. And I think that's a good, useful lesson from you know, taking an evolutionary lens to the, to the problem of sepsis. Another area that I want my students to pay attention to is uh, critical thinking in medicine. And this kind of derives from the observation that I remember being taught when I was at medical school at UCLA that we all, you know, so we all learned that 50% you know, of what we learn in medical school is false and the problem is we just don't know which 50%. And this is really true. And yet we go about teaching and learning as if it's not. That there was some you know, received knowledge that we get from our elders that is simply the way to, to practice medicine. Or from you know, committees that are coming up with guidelines. Uh, so this, again, there's this, when we defer to authority, uh, both in our teachers and in some of... Um, these regulatory or uh, professional groups, we are sometimes leaving our skepticism at, at, at the door. 
And what I've seen so many changes in practice during my career that drive home the idea that skepticism is 100% necessary to protect patients and to protect ourselves, but primarily to protect patients from ourselves in medicine. So I think that the skeptical mind in medicine is the healthy way to approach you know, taking care of patients. And I think that, you know, with regard to skepticism, evolution kind of is sort of famously subversive and has been ever since uh, Darwin and probably before that. And it provides a way of challenging the received knowledge and dogma in medicine. So in that way, I think it's useful. And I'll just close this uh, short podcast by saying that, you know, we are uh, facing streams of thought in medicine that we should be going much more towards protocol-based ba- protocol medicine. So when there's evidence, we should incorporate that into protocols and go towards various algorithms that should guide our treatment of patients. So we see this in emergency medicine. We see it in critical care. Uh, my wife, who practices primary care, uh, is subject to these kinds of things in, in her job. And I would say that algorithms and protocols are good and sometimes they're, they're okay, especially when there's a lot of cognitive load during stressful events, like during a patient coding uh, or during you know, a major trauma, uh, when sometimes the emotion of the event uh, or, it's, or the, you know, uh, when things are happening quickly and it's providing a, a lot of cognitive load, having an algorithm to fall back on so that we avoid simple mistakes is useful. And that's the whole idea behind uh, things like uh, the treatment of cardiac arrest, uh, promoted by uh, the American Heart Association with ACLS, Advanced Cardiac Life Support. But, you know, this this kind of thinking, if taken to its extreme, suggests that robots could do medicine. Robots, after all, can carry out a protocol, and they could probably carry out a protocol better than we humans. I still think, maybe not just for selfish reasons, that there's still a need for humans in medicine. And I think that one of the benefits of having humans in medicine are bringing new strands of thinking into this enterprise. So wondering whether any given treatment is really evidence-based or consistent with what we know about evolutionary biology or simply just challenging some of this received knowledge. That takes a human, I think, not a robot. And this, this way of thinking, skepticism, it takes us all down a peg, gives us a little bit of humility that we don't always know what we're doing, makes us question whether we're doing the right things for our patients. So I do this. I have no problem questioning what I'm doing when I'm taking care of a patient. I often second guess myself. And you could argue that this is harmful because it increases stress on the caregiver, uh, might increase burnout. You could argue that, especially in our difficult career in, in um emergency medicine and what I do. But I think that that's probably, again, a red herring, especially if we bring patients into the, into the care decisions. If we have honest discussions with what we know about risks and benefits, and we don't have to tell patients that we're thinking about it from an evolutionary standpoint, but if we talk about you know, possible benefits to something like, say, a fever, and maybe certain harms from intervening, we can have those kinds of discussions with patients. And that makes, uh, I think for better medicine. And I think that more and better and humane care might result. So those are some some of my reasons for, again, 
being interested in, in evolutionary medicine and why I teach it to my students. I think this is a maybe a slightly different perspective than uh, maybe some other classes teach this topic. But that's what I'll be introducing to my students this afternoon. And with that, uh, we'll check in next week. Have a, have a great week.